Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My guest today is an English broadcaster, writer, television presenter and stand-up comedian. Born in Slough, he began working as a comic in the early 90s, soon landing a gig as co-host of Channel 4's The 11 O'Clock Show, the satirical comedy programme that launched the careers of Sasha Baron Cohen and Ricky Gervais. A slew of high-profile TV and radio presenting gigs followed, including for Channel 4's video game-related show Thumb Bandits. During that time, my guest often used drugs to cope with the stress of his burgeoning career before becoming sober in 2005. Since then, he has openly talked about his struggles with substance abuse and mental health, including on the 17th series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, in which he came third. As well as writing a regular column for Retro Gamer magazine and hosting the Random Access Memories podcast all about 8-bit computers, my guest recently became a trained counsellor drawing upon his first-hand experiences to help others. Welcome, Ian Lee. Gosh, when you put it like that, it, it, it sounds like I've, it sounds like quite a lot. I should give very quickly, we got into the drugs straight away, let's get into them. I did have a relapse after doing I'm a Celebrity, so I'm now three, I've just turned three years uh, sober. Yes. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. Uh, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, when when you hear it read out like that, I do think, oh, that... That is that is quite a lot. <laughs> I d I turns out I did quite well. I had a good old run of it. So um, yeah, no, thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, well, it's certainly not over yet. I mean, we will get into all the all the earlier parts of your career, but I'm interested. You know, what was the catalyst for you choosing to retrain as a psychotherapist uh, three years ago? 
there will be some people who will come. I, I can use the term psychotherapist, but there will be some people. It's a very strange world. There will be some people who go, he's not a psychotherapist. So I call, I call myself a counsellor. Okay. And I'll tell you what it was. It was a few things kind of aligned. I had been doing a late night phony show on talk radio, 10 till 1 at night, weeknights. Uh, it ran for four years, I guess. And it was really, really silly. It was just dumb. You know, we had a... I remember this guy wanted to phone up and talk about Brexit and it really wasn't the kind of thing I was interested in or doing. Mm. He kept going Brexit. I said, well, it's not It's not really that show. So he did this rant about how Brexit was great. And I said, okay, that's really interesting. But supposing you had to fight the Beatles, who do you think you could <laughs> take down first? Easy. And he went, no, 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 I'm talking about Brexit. I said, yeah, no, but just supposing, which Beatle do you think you could take down first? And then there was silence. And he went, I think I could beat John Lennon. <laughs> and that's what the show was. It was nonsense. And I would talk about mental health. I did talk about my addiction. I came out on there as bi. And we had a phone call one night, a guy called Chris, and we were doing a really silly, we're, it was a real clunky gear change. We were doing a very silly thing. I can't think what it was. And this guy said he was slurring his words and it transpired very, very quickly. He had taken an overdose. He was outside somewhere, didn't know where he was. He'd taken an overdose. And it was from the way he was speaking, it was clearly a very dangerous overdose. So we spent, the, me and my producer, Catherine, I spent the next 30 minutes keeping on the line. I got him to describe what he could see. We knew he was in Portsmouth or near Portsmouth. So we got him to describe what he could see, kept him on the line. Hey. And people phoned up and said, I know, I know exactly where he is. He's here. So then Catherine ran out and phoned 999. And, and so I kept him on the line for half an hour. It took about 20 minutes for the police to come. And I was, you know, talking to him about it, talking about life. And after 15 minutes, I ran out of stuff to say. So I'm asking him, you know, can you rank the Die Hard movies for me? It's the first thing that came to mind. And then there was about seven minutes where he went silent. And I really thought, oh, my God, this man has died. I'm t you know, he's died. Right. And then after seven minutes, he kind of came back all slurry. Police came. Don't worry, sir. We've got him. Put the phone down. The the the, the short story is he, he survived. Mm. He did. He went to intensive care. He died. They brought him back to life. So this was a serious thing. And I spoke to him a few times afterwards. And when that call finished, I burst into tears because it was so stressful. I genuinely thought this man had died and it was this, I felt this weight of responsibility. Are you still on air at this point? This was all on air. Correct. And the crying was on air. And I thought, well, what? I wonder what I could have done differently if I'd have had some training. You know, what, what would I have done differently? Could I have been more used to him? And so this seed was planted. Then about two years later during COVID, during lockdown, I got the boot from, from talk radio and something just clicked. I thought, well, maybe I'll become, maybe let me look into being a counsellor. So I tweeted something. And then the wonderful Annabelle Giles, who passed away recently, who I didn't know, but she'd been on TV. She'd made the leap to counselling. She got in touch. We swapped numbers. And she said, this is how I did it. Here's a really good college. It's a condensed course. It's, it's instead of it being evenings, it's full days, two years, blah, blah, blah. And, and that was it, yeah. you know, um, that, God bless Annabelle. I ended up, you know, lost my job in June, started a course in September. And that was, was how it happened. And it became very clear. You, here's something you should know, Simon. When you ask a question, you're going to get a very long answer. Brilliant. <laughs> it became very clear very quickly into the course. I was very unhappy broadcasting and I'd been very unhappy for a long time. And it was, it, it was 
lots of things happening at the, at the right time. Mm. That's how I got into it. Well, I'm interested because you, you know, you've spent many, many years, you know, doing phone-ins with listeners like you just described. They're hearing their problems, yeah. offering advice and so on. But that's all in the public sphere where you're being, you know, you're making entertainment essentially. Yeah. How have you found now doing similar work, but in a therapeutic setting where, you know, you're not being paid to have a witty comeback just to listen? I have to learn to shut up <laughs> because on the radio I talk, you know, I was a gob. And it's funny you mentioned the witty comebacks. Uh, halfway through the, or very early into the course, one of the other students said, Ian, I noticed that every time someone says something, you go for the joke and you make a joke. And I wonder why you do that. And I got annoyed. How dare you? I'm a very, very funny man. How dare you say that to me? And then I thought, right, I'll show her. I won't go for the joke. And I stopped going for the joke. And it was so liberating to actually listen to something and go, uh-huh. And then feel confident to offer an emotional or an intellectual response. So when I'm counselling, the trick is learning to shut up and to listen, to be present. <laughs> and I have to say, Simon, it sounds a little bit perverse because I'm hearing people's worst moments of their lives being shared with me. I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying it because of the trust people are now placing in me. I'm enjoying it because of the progress I'm seeing. You know, it's it's a joy to see people's lives improve in, in some part because of the work we're doing, not because of me, because of the work we're doing. Mm. There's obviously other stuff going on in their lives. But yeah, I absolutely love it. It's it's the, the best thing. I've been running, I've been doing a private practice now for 18 months, maybe a little bit longer. And it's a real joy. I feel, I feel privileged every time I've had two clients today. And every, almost every session, there's still part of me goes, oh my God, they're trusting me with this? This is a, what a, it's a privilege. It's a real privilege. Mm. You've, um, you know, from that intro, it's clear you, you've had a life, certainly the last 20 years have been extreme highs and lows, I'd say, you know, certainly since you became a recognisable face on TV. Um, you know, uh, and, and through all of that, you've, you've shared a great deal, you know, and you've been incentivized to do that, I suppose, because the more vulnerable you make yourself to listeners, you know, the deeper the connection and the more engaged they are in your shows and all of that. I guess, have there been times where you've regretted opening your life up so much on the public stage? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it kind of became my act, it evolved over time. And I would suggest, without blowing my own trumpet because I don't have one, but I would suggest that I was the only person in British radio that was actually being as open. You know, I just say I came out as being bisexual on air about four years ago. You know, I had, had a breakdown on air. Um, but I do look back now and I got kids who one's about to, one's going to turn 14 tomorrow. One's going to turn 12 next week. And I do now think they're going to find that stuff or their friends are going to find that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the, their peers at school are going, oh, my God, your dad's a junkie. Oh, oh my, my God, you know, your dad's bisexual. Oh, my God. And I worry about the impact that will have on my children. However, I do think they will possibly benefit out of it. You know, when I was an addict, was in, was in full-blown addiction, I didn't know what to do. 
I didn't know where to go. My kids now, if they do, hopefully they won't go into that, but if they do become addicts, they now know there's an alternative. They know they can talk to me yeah. about it. If there is any confusion around their sexuality, they now know they commit a different world now anyway. And, and, and so I think they know this already. But hopefully they won't have to get to 46, 45 before addressing that. Yes. So I'm hoping it'll be ho helpful, but I do kind of, yeah, I look back and think, oh man, I wish, I wish you hadn't said, said that. All through, all through this period, what role have the video games played for you? You know, is that through the highs and the lows, are they something that have drifted in and out of your life at different times or have they been a constant source of this, you know, distraction for you? There was a, there was a big gap in, in, in gaming. You know, I grew up with the 8-Bit Micro um, mm. and the BBC Model B was kind of my thing. And then around about, I guess I would have been about 14, 15, so the late 80s, you know, that kind of went in the loft. No. And I thought video games were, were for kids, no. you know, and I, I did kind of move on to drinking and girls and, you know, socialising and carousing and all of those things. And there was a little bit of, you know, going to mates and playing Sonic on the Mega Drive, but there wasn't much. So I missed out on the Game Boy, the Mega Drives, the SNESs, all of that stuff. I remember... I don't even know when it was. It must have been the early nineties. I couldn't. I couldn't date it. I remember being around a friend's house one night, and they had this black box under the telly. And I said, "What's that box?" I went, "Oh, it's a Sega Saturn." And I went, "What is that?" It's a games console. Do you want to have a go? It's like, "Yeah, I'm all right. I have a go." And they put Wipeout on on the Sega Saturn, and I was blown away. I I I was like. Oh my God, home video games got this good? <laughs> this is incredible. And it 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 blew my mind, <laughs> you know, and, and I was I was sucked back in, baby, because it was a huge quantum leap from playing Citadel on the BBC to wipe out. Changed my Big life. Distance, yeah. Well, yeah. we better turn to the premise then of the podcast. So I've asked you Ian to pick the five video games you'd like to install in your very own personal uh, video game console. Looking forward to discussing these with you. We're going to go back a bit earlier than the uh, Sega Saturn here. So tell us about your first game that's from 1983. Okay, so I'm 1983, I'm nine, I'm 10. And I remember we were allowed to stay up, me and my sister, who's a few years older than me, we were allowed to stay up late one night, like proper late. I was like, why are we allowed to stay up? Well, your dad's bringing something home. Ooh, okay. My dad worked at the BBC. He worked in the props department. One one night or one weekend, Simon, yeah, <laughs> you know, this is how exciting this stuff was. One weekend, he took us round to the lock-up garage. We lived on a council estate in Slough. He took us round to the lock-up garage. He opened it. There was an actual Dalek in there. <laughs> you know, this is the kind of power this man had. And he brought home, and he brought home this big box with red dragons on it, this big polystyrene box, and he opened it. There was a computer. There was a Dragon 32 computer, and it looked like a typewriter, but it didn't look like a typewriter. And he plugged it in, tuned the TV in, and suddenly there's this green screen. I think there's a flashing cursor on the Dragon. I'm not sure. And he said, right, type something on the keys. And we typed something, and it appeared on the screen. It is impossible to get over to anyone under the age of 50 how amazing it was to be able to type words on a screen and then come up. Absolutely mind-blowing. 
I was hooked then, right? It's like, oh, this is what the rest of my life is going to be. And he brought, he had some cassettes, he had a cassette player. And I, I, one of the first games he loaded up was, was I now know a game called Dragon Slayer. And it's a 3D maze and you walk around this maze and then these evil monks, faceless monks pop up and you've got to shoot them. You can hear footsteps and things. And, you know, Dragon 32 was not a great computer. This was a great looking game for the dragon. And for the time, this was a great looking game. Mm -hmm. 3D maze was unheard of and it, it looked stunning. And I found it terrifying because of the footsteps and these monks were really scary. I found it thrilling. I it was addictive. And the interesting thing about Dragon Slayer was after that first night, I could never find it again. Either that tape disappeared or it got taped over or something because I could never find that game ever again. And it's only in the last couple of years when I've kind of got back into retro gaming quite heavily that I've looked it up and found out what it was. I thought it was a game called Maze or something like that. No, wait, so you just played it the one time and then it... Yeah. yeah got this mythical sort of feeling in your head yeah yeah it was exactly that it became this myth and i couldn't find it ever again didn't know what it was called and it really was quite often people will talk about oh i saw david bowie on top of the pops in 1973 for the first time and it changed my life it was like seeing the world in color or i saw mark boland or i heard the beatles or whatever this, for me, was my Mark Boland, David Bowie, the Beatles on top of the Pops moment. Suddenly, the world was in colour. Suddenly, anything was possible. And, you know, from that moment onwards, nine or ten years old, I was addicted. I was, I was totally addicted. It was beautiful. Beautiful. And it's the only time I can remember my dad playing games with us. Uh, you know, and I wish he'd I wish he'd got involved more, but that was the only time I can remember him doing it. Right, when he brought the system back. Yeah. yeah. It's funny they I'd forgotten about the dragon, but they don't name computers like that anymore, do they? <laughs> more more's the pity. Welsh. It was Welsh. It was all the cliches. I've got one in the um kitchen. I bought one in the kitchen. This is what got me really back into retro gaming and why I started the podcast. And I, I I bought a dragon and it's got a mod on it. So you've got all of the games are on an SD card. Amazing. It's insane. It's not a great computer, but I have so much affection. Wonderful. For it. So yeah, tell me tell me about growing up in Slough. It was, can I swear on here? Yeah. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it was not great. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. I didn't really fit in. We lived on a council estate and we would get bullied for being posh. And we weren't posh at all. I could never understand it. I think it's because we moved one of the last to move in, the Britwell right. estate. You had quite a posh surname, Rugby. Is that right? Rugby. Is that posh? It was. It looks posh written down because how you say it isn't how it's spelled, right? Well, it, it looks posh written down. I'm just going to turn my heated blanket off because I'm an old man. It, it, I, I got bullied for that because no one could pronounce it. No one could spell it. Rugby, Rugi, Rugi. What is this? Rugby. And so I, you know, I, I changed it legally to Lee quite a bit later on for various reasons. But I, maybe that was part of the bullying uh, uh, on the estate. So I didn't really like it. And as we grew older as my kids would do at some point, we'd say to my parents, you moved out of London for this? You know, you want to live in London. And it, it very quickly, as I grew older and older, I was, you know, I got 14, 15, 16. I resented Slough a lot. I hated it. I thought it was grim. I thought it was nowhere town. I've since 
you know, I've got a lot of love and respect for Slough now. I, you know, I think it's a great town and I still go there sometimes and, and, and brings back some really, really wonderful memories. And, and I would never diss it now. But at the time, as, as an angry 14, 15-year-old, I really hated it. And London, London was the target. That was the place we were all aiming mm. for. It's not that, I mean, for overseas listeners, it's not that far Slough from London, is it? It's No, when you're 14, it's, it's a lifetime away. Right. When right. you're 15, it's a... 45 minute train journey away maybe right. maybe 30 minutes if you get the fast train okay. so no it isn't that far and and that was part of the problem is it was within grasp you I could see. smell it you <laughs> could smell it but the thought of actually getting there on a permanent basis it, it, it might as well have been China mm. how did you deal with the bullies were you one of those kids who uses humor to kind of deflect I, I didn't deal with it very well Simon and this is one of my great shames is I became a bully you know, to, 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 to get some form of control and to feel some form of power over my own life, I became a bully. And, you know, I did some terrible things to some really wonderful, wonderful people. I've, I've met up with part of the 12-step program. I've met up with some of them to make amends, to apologize and to listen to the impact that my behavior had on them. But it's one of my great shame, Simon, is... I, I, I handled it very badly and I became a bully. But what I was going through was also awful and no one listened. No one listened. No one heard. No one met. I remember when I started at Herschel Grammar School, I was in the second year and I got bullied straight away because I was lanky. And I remember complaining about it. And there was this teacher who should remain nameless, but he was a bastard. And he called me in to talk about it. And I walked in and the three lads were there. And... He said, so you're saying these lads have bullied you? I said, yeah. He said, well, I don't believe you because they're, they're hard workers, so no. Oh, dear. And that was the what I was dealing with. And I very quickly, partly because of things like that, partly because what I now know is ADHD, I very quickly kind of resented school and didn't. I went, but I didn't take part in school. And it's uh, around this time that your mum's diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. yeah. And how, how did that affect the family in your lives? Well, it, 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 it's really interesting you bring that up, Simon, because the, the effect is still happening now. So she got diagnosed when she was 40. I, me and my sister had to make the painful decision at 57 to move her into a care home because her her life was awful. She could not do anything for herself. And we, we put her in a care home. It's interesting you mentioned it because the ripples are still going on now. She lived in that care home from 2008 to today, actually to today, the 12th of January. And today she is moving to a, a new care home because the one she's in, they're selling it because it's prime property in Gerard's Cross. And right. The company will get a few million quid. So today she's moving to a new care home. I'm the only person that's seen it. None of my family have seen it. She hasn't seen it. It, it was a real game of, of uh, pontoon with, with the council. They would offer you a place and you'd have to go, no, but you didn't know what the next place was going to be. Oh. And so we had to stop on what I thought was the best place. And I'm bricking it because no one else has seen it. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. She hasn't seen it. It is a lot of pressure. My, my sister hasn't seen it. And they trust me implicitly. And this home is a compromise because it's not as nice as the last one. It doesn't have a garden. More importantly, it doesn't, it's not near anywhere. So we can't take mum out for a walk and go for a coffee. So the impact has been, so 33 years, so I was, would have been 17 when she was diagnosed. The impact has been most of my life. And it has robbed me of my mum. 
you know, very quickly after that diagnosis, she became very dependent on me. And I did everything I could to keep her in that house. I did everything I could. And it just, it was impossible. And, and, and from about 60 onwards, her cognition has disappeared greatly. So in many ways, I've not had a mum for the last 15, 20 years because this awful disease took her away, took her away physically first and then mentally. And my my boys, I showed them a picture recently of her when she was much younger. And they went, oh my God, Nanny Linda used to be able to stand. I'm going to choke up at that. And I said, yeah, she's about to stand and she's about to talk properly. And she's about to feed herself and she's about to dance and all of this stuff. So yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's a really cruel disease and it, it stole my mum. Pleasure to talk about that, Ian. And, uh, Thank yeah. you for asking. I appreciate I it. I didn't know it was uh, this day. So Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm going to go and see. I'm going to go and see. She's moving. It's so funny. It's 20, we're recording this at 25 past one. She's moving at half past one. Right. And I, after this, I'm going to go straight to the new place and check on her. So really interesting time. And thank you for uh, asking about that. I appreciate it. Let's come to you a second game then, Ian. So this is from 1984, a game for the BBC Micro, I believe. Yeah, the Elite. greatest game ever made and again this all ties in and i know we haven't spoken about this we've messaged dm on twitter but what i like about this Simon, is you've not asked me anything before so this is a spontaneous conversation and sometimes higher power kicks in and this is all ties in so i got this the elite on the bbc model b and the christmas before god it sounds i sound like such a miserable git hey listen guys i'm really happy and i'm in a loving relationship i got great kids and i got great cats and i'm really happy <laughs> but i'm making this sound so miserable some of the next games coming up are very celebratory one of them isn't actually but the christmas before boxing day my dad left he was having an affair and he moved out boxing day i was like oh okay christmas sucks so the next christmas we went to my nan's to nanny jennings and we were having christmas there and it was quite a tough one on all of us. I remember I got a banjo, bizarrely. And I got this, I got Elite. And I knew I was getting it because I'd been very specific about it. But still, the joy of unwrapping it, and it came in this beautiful box, this big cardboard box, and it had stuff in it. It had this big, thick instruction booklet. It had a novella, this short story. People know what a novella is. It had a pamphlet that had the controls on. It had a strip that went under the keys so you knew what buttons, what function buttons to press. And I was at my nan's for two days, so I had no way of playing it, but I devoured the instructions. I kind of snorted them up and just read every single word of it. And it didn't disappoint. Oh my God, it's one hell of a game. On the on a 32K computer, it had 10,000 planets in mm. you could visit. 
and it's been explained to me how that was possible. I don't, I don't understand it. Sort of algorithmically generated, weren't they? I don't know what that means. You know what that means? <laughs> you know what that means, don't you? N- not, not really. I'm not a maths genius like the makers of that game. No. Um, and they were geniuses. It was so beautiful. It looked beautiful. It sounded beautiful. Wonderful vector graphics. Mm. It had everything in it. You know, you could just go out and shoot people, but if you shot too many people, the police came after you and you couldn't be the police unless you had... There were these weird kind of like enemies. I think they were called the Thargoids that would just pop up. If you hyperspace to the wrong place, you go, oh my God, I've hyperspaced into a Thargoids place. There were these docking stations that I just could not dock into. So you had to save 500 credits to buy a docking computer. <laughs> you could be a good person and you could buy vegetables and minerals and trade you buy them in one place and take them to the next place and trade them or you could buy slaves and narcotics and you could make a fortune doing that but you became a fugitive it was and i i, I keep meaning to go back to it i'm slightly scared to go back to it in case part of me goes uh yeah so I'm I'm nervous to go back to it, but but honestly, Simon, it was groundbreaking. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was beautiful. It was. I was. It was so good. It was. Oh my god! It was so good. I love that memory you have of you know when you open a game and it, there's a little bit of time before you can actually play the game, so you mm. just it, it's all in your imagination from reading the instructions. I think everyone has had that experience probably who plays games yeah. it's wonderful isn't it and it didn't disappoint the box art didn't disappoint you know quite often you get the box art and you load it up and you go, oh <laughs> okay but this didn't disappoint it was as yeah. good as everyone said it was and i know there have been spin-offs and different versions and apparently the bbc master b version is the best and there's elite dangerous and all of that stuff and i haven't gone on to those yeah. Uh, that game to me is so pure and is so beautiful and it's a work of art you know I, I think it's one of the first works of art in that generation of computers it was a real sign and again this was written by two people you know it was a real sign of what was you know what could happen a few years down the line great planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Game. Right, let's come back to your story then, Ian. So, where, yeah, when did you first try comedy then? I tell you where it was. So I went to Middlesex University, 
to do performing arts. And I went there because it was a great place and because they said you can get in with two E's in your A-levels. Uh, and I was not good at A-levels. I was not, I was not, I, I now know it's partly ADHD and partly just boredom. I was not good. I managed to squeak in. And it was such a great college, you know, and it really, we there were no exams, the practical exams, doing performances. I think we had to write three essays over the three years. You know, it's, it's what I believe some people might refer to as a Mickey Mouse course. Well, up yours. <laughs> Adam Ant went there and <laughs> loads of people I know went there. And we learn dance, drop that after the first semester. We learn, you know, all the different style of restoration, Shakespeare, uh, Arto, all of these great things. We learn to have confidence in yourself. We learn so much. And one of the modules was stand-up comedy. And it was taken by this man who I now know is is a legend in the London comedy circuit, a guy called Hugh Edwards. <laughs> no, Hugh Thomas. I knew I was going to get it wrong. <laughs> Hugh Edwards is a legend for something completely different. <laughs> That's a different image. <laughs> it really is. That was a genuine mistake. I always pause before I say it and I got the wrong one. And it was this course about stand-up comedy. And it was... A lot of it was microphone technique, but a lot of it taught me. It was about saying anything is possible. You get up on a stage. It's not just there going, have you ever noticed? Or, you know, hotels or, you know, my wife. He taught me you can stand on a stage and do anything. You can stand there for 10 minutes and not say anything. You can stand there and strip off. You can stand there with your back to the audience. You can do anything you want. And that for me... Again, it was another mind-blowing thing. Oh, so I don't have to stand there and do jokes that go, you know, I don't have to stand there and do a script. I can, I can do anything. And uh, we did this course, and the first performance was was at Hughes Club, a really famous comedy club in London called Downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End, and the first gig was people laughed, you know, it's like, oh my God. So I started booking in tryout spots in London and the second gig, I remember I was in a club in Hammersmith, a really, really big club, and I died on my ass. Sil I made the mistake of getting drunk before doing it because I thought oh, that will loosen me up. Silence. Oh man, Simon, you have not lived till you've stood on a stage for 10 minutes and had silence at you. No, no, thank you. It really, it really, you know, separates the wheat from the chaff. Uh, it was incredible. And I hated it. And I'm so grateful that that happened. And it happened a lot. And I'm really grateful it happened. I learned more from failure than, than, than from success. So that was my way in. And then when I left college, I wanted to be an actor. And I couldn't get any acting work. So I just booked stand-up gigs, open spots, five minutes here, three minutes, ten minutes. You'd get Time Out magazine and there'll be numbers and you'd phone them up and say, can I book a, an open spot? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I did it because I couldn't get any acting work. because I wanted what we called stage time oh. so I could, you know, build up my confidence. I didn't really want to be a stand-up. But over time, I sort of developed this act that was okay. It wasn't great. But I remembered what Hugh had taught me and I... I would sometimes do shows where I go, right, I'm not going to do my my set. I'm just going to see what happens. And I now recognize that when I was seeing what happened, that was me leaning into the ADHD and just letting it fire off, the tangents fire off. And some stuck and some didn't. <clears throat> and I had some of the best gigs, you know, most ever, it was 20 minutes. But some of the best gigs where I just leaned into the ADHD and went manic. Some of the worst gigs as well. But it was really freeing. 
And that certainly carried over into my radio work. Yeah. Just thinking, right, I'm sat behind this microphone, but I don't have to do... Coming up today, we've got a guy who thinks Brexit is great and we've got a woman who thinks Brexit is terrible. And then after that, we're going to talk about is climate change man-made? And then after that, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of Brexit. I learned really early on, you don't have to do that. You can go in. Remember when I worked at the local BBC station in, in WN, BBC WN, Birmingham, and I had a bit of paper. And the boss said, so what's on the show today? I said, I don't know. Because what have you got on your paper? I said, oh, no, it's blank. It's just for making notes during the show. And it terrified her. I got called in and got really told off for that. But that's how I worked. I would, <laughs> For most of my shows, I'd go in, not a clue what I was going to do. And as the fader went up, I'd go, oh, I've got it right. We're doing this. And that's why some people really, really loved it. And that's why some people really, really hated it. <laughs> you know. But, 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 but stand-up was always a means to an end. And when I got the 11 o'clock show, I did about four more stand-up gigs after that. And it was like, well, I don't want to. You were done. I don't want to do this. TV was the goal. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's put a pen in that. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's talk about your third game. So, yeah, you've mentioned it right at the start. Let's, uh, yeah, tell us about this one. Yeah. This. So, so this is why, pal. Primarily on the Saturn, okay, and I've, I've told about how it, it blew my mind, you know, again, it was it was like if the Dragon 32 changed my world to colour, then then this, this game changed my world to 3D. And I remember we were, it was with a girlfriend at a time, and we were at her friend's house. We'd come back from clubbing, I was not a big clubber, but we came back, so I was probably chemically enhanced at that point. And as soon as that game came on, that was it. The other two people became invisible. They played it for about 10, 10 minutes, half an hour. Then they became bored. And I'm just there going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it is what sucked me back into gaming. And after that, I spent the next four or five weeks going around going, do I get a Saturn? Do I get a PlayStation? Do I get a Saturn? Do I get a PlayStation? I would walk into HMV or Dixon's or whatever and go, Sega or PlayStation? And gradually, as it was going on, the Sega section, the Saturn section was getting smaller and the PlayStation section was getting bigger. But the Saturn was really cheap because they reduced the price. And I plumped for PlayStation. Of course, it was the right choice. And I remember it cost like 300 quid or something. And I was signing on. And I had to, I'd never done this before. I signed up to it on HP, on the Never Never. I've never done that before. And I remember about two weeks after I did that, they reduced the price to, I don't know, 180 yeah, quid or something. Night. But I was in. I was in, I had a PlayStation, and Wipeout was the game, and it was the game that made gaming sexy. I mean, everyone knows this, but it's the game that made gaming sexy, you know, because it was the music, because of, they put it, they, they put PlayStations playing Wipeout in nightclubs. And the speed of it, man, the speed of it, Simon. Again, I sound like such an old fart. Well, I am. The speed of Wipeout was 
unbelievable. How are you doing that? It was it was so powerful. It was so beautiful. And because I'd missed out on the Nintendo and the snares and those consoles, again, it was a huge quantum leap. It was, yeah. Um, I hadn't seen the progression. And, oh, my God, I wasted so... No, I didn't. I spent so much time playing Wipeout. And it's that game where it burns on your retinas and you'd be in bed at night and you could see the tracks. You'd get motion sick because you could see the game playing where every time you closed your eyes... And it's still a great game. You know, they've made remakes, which are great. That first game stands up. Graphics are a little bit flaky. But that first game is one of the few PS1 games, I think, that really stands the test of time. I could have a good couple of hours, you know, if I'm left to my own devices playing the original Wipeout. Loving it. Finding that that little when to press the button so you get the turbo. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, that sort of like blocky PlayStation 3D effect, which is quite crude... But it's really coming back into fashion again in indie games. You know, sort of the 2D pixel art yeah. is a bit is a bit more done now and people are getting back into that style. So, yeah, lovely stuff. Yeah, I do sometimes think, come on, indie games, we've had enough of the 8-bit <laughs> nods. Let's just try something yeah. different. But it's, you know, obviously PlayStation's not 8-bit, but, but those old style of games, it, they're beautiful. And it, it was, it, it, again, I cannot convey the sense of speed that you had in that game. It was just... It was just perfect. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. What a launch title. What a launch title. So tell me, yeah, you you mentioned getting the job on the 11 o'clock show. How did that come about? How did they find you? I got a gig at a local radio station in Milton Keynes, and I I didn't like it. It was it involved getting up at half past four. I'm not a morning person. It involved, I was Ian in Black Thunder, and I had to drive a black Jeep around and get people to do crazy, wacky stuff. Oh, like Annika Rice type thing. Kind of, yeah, and I hated it really hated it the people there were wonderful lovely Helen who's, who's sadly no longer with us Trevor and I hated it and after six months I gave my notice in and everyone's like what are you doing and this could be the start of a really decent local radio career it's like no nah, this isn't for me and I remember the last week one of the marketing team came in with a fax I said oh Ian you might be interested in this have a look and it was from Talkback Productions we are we are creating a Late night comedy show for Channel 4, open auditions, comedians, presenters, actors, radio presenters. Oh, okay. So I presented it to my agent at the time. He said, yeah, I've heard about this. They're seeing everyone. Don't think you're right for it, Ian. And I kept badgering him going, but but Neil, I would really... He said, Ian, nah, you're not right for it. I'm not going to put you up for it. So I got in touch with them. And they said, yeah, come in for an audition. And I went in. And they wanted me to film some Vox Pops on the street. And I did my best Chris Morris impression. <laughs> and we filmed some Vox Pop. And I, I, I came away from that thinking, I this is this feels different. This feels really different. But I was skinned. I'd moved back to my mum's. I was broke. I was in debt. And this was the last roll of the dice. Yeah. It's like, if I don't get this, I am going to get a proper job for three years, earn some money, and then look at it. And I just kept getting called back and called back. And then at one point I edited, I was editing a video I'd made and Harry Thompson, the producer, came in. Now, Harry is a legendary producer. He created They Think It's All Over. Maybe not, no, not Have I Got Used, but They Think It's All Over. He, 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 you know, (laughs) guys, go and Google Harry Thompson. He did everything. And he came in and he said, so Ian, do you want to come and make some films for the series? Yeah, that was it. I got the job. And so my original role was just to be the guy going out and doing Vox Pops. 
they did a week, they did three shows of pilots. They, they, they did hundreds of tests. They tested everybody. Yeah. And I was invited in to watch all of the auditions. And they would ask me, what did you think of this person? What did you think of that person? What? And then they had, they were doing three non-broadcast pilots, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it's supposed to be three presenters. They had Fred McCauley and Brendan Burns. And they were trying someone else. And it was clearly not working. And after the, 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 the morning of the Thursday show, they said to me, what do you think we should do? And I said, you know what? I could do that. <laughs> what? And they went, all right, yeah, you're hosting the show tonight. Wow. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I can't imagine having the balls to say I, I could do that. <sighs> and suddenly I'm the third person, the third host. And it worked. And I, I then for the first series, I was the third host. And then by the second series, I was made the main <clears> host. <throat> so that's that's how... I got it. And it, I, I still look back and cannot believe it, it happened. Can't believe it happened. But it did. I was so lucky. So lucky. And I guess, you know, this, you're in your early 20s. This is a high pressure environment. 24, yeah. Is that when the sort of substance abuse was really, you were using that as a crutch or was it something else? I was a junkie by that point, but it was primarily weed. Uh, you know, I've been smoking weed from 16 and a college it became a really, really big thing and, and speed became a big thing. And then ecstasy became a really big thing. You know, there's a reason they call that drug ecstasy. You know, it became a really big thing. And I was dropping pills whenever I had the chance. And then sort of the year of the 11 o'clock show, someone gave me some cocaine. You know, and if, drag, if the dragon was colour, if Wipeout was 3D, cocaine was like being sent into outer space and it was it just clicked and I thought okay this is this is my thing so I do cocaine a little bit and then is this gonna be one of those podcasts that I regret saying all this stuff because of my kids we're in now and then you know suddenly I've gone from signing on being 10 grand in debt whatever it was to earning telly money and telly money's really really good certainly back in the late 90s was really good I, suddenly I was earning I don't know, three grand a week or something. I don't know what it hey. was. I'd never had anything like it. I didn't know about tax at that point either. That came to haunt me a couple of years later. I didn't know about tax. <laughs> so, oh, you're supposed to put some of this money away? Oh, okay. And so suddenly I've got money. Suddenly I'm in an industry where cocaine is rife. And in some corners, certainly in the late 90s, it's open. You know, it's open. And, you know, and I had dealers. And I was fucked that from that point onwards... And very quickly, cocaine took control and very quickly, cocaine controlled my decisions. And very quickly, it made me a thoroughly unpleasant person. It did two things to me. It made me think I was the greatest, funniest, cleverest person on the planet. It also made me think I was a complete useless piece of shit at the same time. Mm. This cognitive dissonance and these two things existing simultaneously. It's a dangerous combination of things to believe, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I very, very quickly became out of control. I very, very quickly became a terrible partner to a wonderful girl I was seeing and saw for a long time. Very, very quickly became unemployable and unmanageable. Well, took, that took four years. It's not long at all, is it? Crikey. You posted a, a video on um, social media recently about, I think someone had uploaded a season of Rise, which was sort of the big breakfast yeah. alike that you were one of the main hosts of. Yeah. I was watching and... Um, I felt like a little protective of you, if I'm honest. Go on. Because it was clear that you were going through stuff. 
you know, it's it's funny. You're like extremely talented as a presenter in it, obviously, but it also there's an edge to it that I think you can detect knowing this, knowing the full story. Yeah, was there no one looking out for you in that at that time? No, there was my partner, but I wasn't interested in what she had to say because she was, you know, in my head was ruining my celebrity lifestyle. And I say that with real shame because she was she was such a kind, beautiful person who, you know, stood by me, stood by me. Um, <clears throat> no, there was no one. And and Rise, I can't watch it. Someone put up a week of shows from December, so that's right at the end. And 2003, going into, I got clean the first time, 2004, September 2004. And Rise that was when I was almost at my sickest because again, I'm getting paid, paid 4,000 pounds. Jesus, even saying that out loud, it just seems incredible to me. Again, I wasn't considering tax and I found a dealer that would deliver and all, nearly all of that money went on cocaine. Nearly all of that money went on cocaine and I was so ill and most of those shows I had been on, a, I'd been doing cocaine the night before. I very rarely did it. I don't think I ever did it before the show. Like I'm going to go, I'm just going to go to the toilet, have a little bump. And then I hate the phrase bump, have a toot. I, I, I very rarely did it. I did it sometimes. I'd certainly smoke weed before the show. I'd go and smoke three or four joints before the show to kind of just get me level. I can't watch that stuff. You look at me. I remember, um, oh, who's the TV critic? He died. Victor Lewis Smith said something like, Ian Lee is brilliant, but he looks like a skeleton. And I do, I look sick. I look sick because I wasn't eating. My diet was cocaine and weed. And I was unmanageable at that point. I was arrogant. I was cheating on my partner. I was, I was awful. So no, there was no one. And I really look back and I wish someone, I said in that tweet, I was offered, I was asked to host, have I got news for you? I said, no. Because I was scared I was going to get found out. And I really wish there had been, my agent didn't really do it, someone who would take me to one side and say, you're going to throw this all away. You need to take six months away from everything. You need to get clean. You need someone to help you with the decisions you're making around your life. And I, I never had that. And the addiction spiraled over into 2004. And I, I, I hardly worked in 2004, in part because I'd made myself un, unemployable. And in part because I'm, I'm doing a load of cocaine. I'm very, very happy doing this. And I wasn't. I nearly died a few times. You know, nearly had a heart attack. And uh, I nearly killed myself a few times. And, uh, uh, and all of that. So Rise, I'm really proud of. I think it's a really good show. I think it gets a terrible rap. It was never going to live up to The Big Breakfast, which they also asked me to host. I think it's a really good show. I remember the last few weeks, Vic and Bob reviewed it and they, they raved about it. And that was like, oh my God, Vic and Bob. They said I looked like a young Clint Eastwood, which I don't understand. But uh, but that poor boy, that poor boy hosting that show, it was so lost. Yeah. So, feel sorry for him. Okay, let's come to your fourth game then, Ian. So this is from 1997. Golden Eye. Uh, Goldeneye and the N64. And I could have picked any N64 game. And I tell you what it was. I had a PlayStation. 
fantastic. Suddenly, you know, suddenly I'm doing the 11 o'clock show. I'm living with my good friend Mackenzie Crook, who's who's also doing that and some other stuff. Suddenly we've got money. And I thought, I've got a PlayStation. I'm going to buy an N64. I'm going to have two consoles. And this <laughs> to me, Simon, seemed like the height of decadence. <laughs> I'm going to have two consoles. And I remember buying it and thinking, shit, is this, am I doing the right thing? This feels... I felt, you know, working class guilt about spending money, I suppose. Maybe, I don't know. Suddenly I had two consoles and it really was to me, that was, that was me living the celebrity lifestyle. Yeah, people come in and go, you go oh my God, you got two consoles. Yeah, mate, I'm on telly, innit? I'm on the telly. I can afford to do this. I bought that and I bought a steering wheel for the PlayStation and the steering wheel was crap. But these felt like real extravagances and it felt amazing being able to walk into a shop, get out my Switch card and buy it. <laughs> and it was okay because I had money in the bank. So the whole N64 for me was a real sign of decadence and success. People talk about buying Ferraris or, you know, whatever. <laughs> buying an N64 was like 150 quid. Um, and it was great. And and, and GoldenEye was, was such fun. Fun. You know, those early days before drugs became a real problem, when celebrity was, oh, it was delicious, it was tingly, it was wonderful, it was new. It was like, oh my God, I've reached the pinnacle. This is what I wanted. My own TV show, a bit of recognition and some money in the bank. And, you know, having friends over and, and loading up Goldeneye. You know, the four-player Goldeneye is is one hell of an experience. Yeah. We've got eight people around and we're drinking and smoking joints. We're, we're, we're going to be filming a, 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 some sketches tomorrow. You know, Mackenzie's writing some stuff for the Comedy Cafe show he was presenting. It was this real... It's so low-key. It's so small. It was, the, it, was, it was the physical manifestation of my success. <laughs> Everything I'd worked towards had happened. I'd always wanted to host a TV show that was a bit like the day-to-day. -day. <laughs> oh, I'm doing it. It was, it was, it signified success to me. And it's a great game. You know, it, it was one of the best games on that console. Uh, it, it's a little bit clunky now. It doesn't play quite so well, but it's still fun. It was the four player split screen. Yes, We it had was, never yeah. seen anything like it. Again, I still don't really know how the N64 could pull that off. You know, online gaming was the, the preserve of, of, you know, computer nerds, yep. PC nerds. It wasn't really accessible. It was before the Dreamcast, so it wasn't really accessible to, to them in the mainstream. So having four, was I, I didn't even know what a LAN party was then. So having four people play it, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. What fun. Yeah, magical times, yeah. definitely. I remember actually, this, this would have been a few years later, but I was at uh, Computer Exchange in Rathbone Place, off Oxford Street and I was behind you in line and I was a student at the time oh. and you were probably at the height of your TV fame then. And wow. I mean, it was certainly memorable to me that someone off the telly was in the same shop where I bought my games. So is that where you where you shopped? Yeah, because Torback Productions around the corner Correct. on Percy Street. Mm -hmm. So we would go in there. That that one had that amazing basement as well downstairs. Yeah, with the retro stuff. Yeah, it had these wonderful like three-sided display of of wonderful retro stuff, yeah. you know, which was worth hundreds and probably worth thousands now. Um, I got a, a, a Nomad from Oh, there. lovely. I hope I wasn't a dick to you or, or no, anything. No, no, you were just, I, I, there was no interaction. Uh, it was okay. just, it was just, oh, no, that was Ian. <laughs> how funny. Well, uh, well thank you for, for, for reminding me of that place and, and bringing that up. 
Yeah, that was a really special shop. I spent a lot of time downstairs in yeah, there. Yeah, it's all second-hand mobile phones now, alas, but never mind. Yeah, and they they pay crap prices if you go and trade. But there you go. And also, if, what is this nonsense of calling it sex? Kind of, I think Charlie Brooker came up with that. Charlie, it does not spell sex. It spells kex. <laughs> How dare you try and organ going out to sex? Mm. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, you mentioned earlier you get you get clean in you know two thousand four and then properly in two thousand and five. Um, yeah, I'm interested actually. Like you know, I d- you mentioned Vic and Bob being uh, you know, very um, complimentary about the the show, but uh, you know, watching some of those some of that stuff from the late nineties and early two thousands now, it it strikes me as quite cruel. A lot of the comedy, um, you know, today I think <laughs> yes. you probably wouldn't survive your career wouldn't survive some of those jokes. How do you reflect on that era now? I mean, everyone was doing it. I'm not singling you out, but what do you what do you think? At the time, I loved mm. it. At the time, I loved it. I remember when Rod Hull died. Remember someone coming? He died when we were recording the show, and someone came in with a Rod Hull joke. Did it with glee. When and I'm not going to say who because I actually am really embarrassed. But when the wife of one of my favourite pop stars died, came in with a joke about it. Yeah, I'll do it. I, I revelled in causing the offence. I didn't see any problem with it, and that is something I've had to make peace with as I've got older, as I've become a dad, as I've become more mature, as I've become more empathic, as I've become less selfish, and I really struggled with that a lot. And coming to terms with, we said some awful stuff here's one you don't have to say them again on this show i won't say i won't i won't say i won't bring it down but um but but now i've made peace with it now i've made peace with it yeah i did an interview recently there's a documentary about the the disgraced pop star coming out and they got me on it to talk as a counselor but then they also showed me some jokes i'd made about it on the 11 o'clock show and they said, how do you feel about making jokes? I said, well, first of all, the joke was about him, not the people that he affected being deliberately fake because it's not nice to, to really mention. Secondly, yeah, it was 25 years ago. I made those jokes and I have to accept, yeah, I made those jokes. If we sat down now and watched an episode of the 11 o'clock show, there, there would be stuff that would make us both wince. It was 25 years sure. ago. I did it. Mm. You know, I did it. I wouldn't say it now. And again, you know, someday... Some of it was homophobic. Some of it was racist. Yeah. Do I stand by it? Of course I don't stand by it. But I did it. And I own the fact that I did it. And I've apologised publicly several times for it. I probably have to apologise. Someone someone will listen to this and go, oh, I'm going to go and catch him out. And they'll go and watch it and go, oh my God, I can't believe this man who works with people who are mentally ill, you know, would, would joke about this. I'll apologise again. And I, it's their sincere apologies, but I did it. I have to own it. Mm. Yeah, wouldn't say it now. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm certainly not pointing the finger at you. I was just interested in how you look at it now. Oh, so. I don't see. It. I don't hear it like that. Okay. I think it's an interesting, and I think it's a fair point to bring up, and it's certainly one I'm very, very happy to address. I would not say fifty percent of those things now, and they would make me wince if I saw them. So you you move into radio for quite a prolonged period and then you're back on telly with as i mentioned uh going into the jungle which for overseas yeah. listeners is a very popular reality tv show featuring celebrities in a jungle camp celebrities in inverted commas yes how did you react when you got the invitation i got asked four times to do it and i said no and i said no partly because there were family members who would have hated who, who said 
who told me they didn't want me to do it. And I respected that. That it was also, I saw it as a real sign your career was over. And also I saw it as a, as a check in the back pocket. The, they've, okay, they've asked me four times. That's interesting. All right. Maybe I can cash that check in at a later date. And I did. When my marriage ended and I was living, I moved out and lived in a, in a, in a room. I was living in a room and I had no chance of getting somewhere, you know, permanently without that money. So I then got in touch with ITV and said, look, you've asked me four times to do this. Is that offer still open? And it was, and they got me in. The, the thing is, the thing I found out is when you go and ask them, they offer you significantly less. Right. Than, than they offer, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but, you know, it, it was it was low tens of thousands, right. which is still a lot of money. Sure. But most people, other people get over a hundred. Anyway. I was very happy with that. Does the money go up the longer you stay in? No. This this really annoys my kids. You came third. You should have got more. Mm. It, it works. There's, there's three stages, right? You get you get paid a first bit for signing on and going to Australia. You get paid a second bit for staying halfway. You get paid a third bit for staying until you get voted out. Right. Um, however, it easily got me... It got me so much work afterwards that I made a lot of money. I got another two years at talk radio. I got to be the showbiz host on Good Morning Britain for a couple of months. I got to do voiceovers. I got to, I got to, I got to slide down a chimney on loose women. You know, <laughs> not a euphemism. If, if you type in D and Lee in, in gifs, that you know, that quite often comes up. Me sliding down a slide. They paid me five grand. I'll slide down a slide. It got me so much work that I was incredibly grateful. I'm really proud of it. My kids loved it. They were proud of their dad. I I, I did some challenges I never thought I'd do, you know, being 100 foot in the air, you know, despite being afraid of heights. I put up with being in with a bunch of assholes. <laughs> and I came third, mm -hmm. which I thought was great until last year when Nigel Farage came third. So it demeaned it slightly. <laughs> I'm so proud of it. I came back out and within a week, after 13 years of sobriety, within a week I was taking drugs. Was that a sort of like, a, you know, just a natural response to, oh, this is the world of TV, so it was almost like instinctive? It was the final nail in the coffin. Right, it was building up to I'd it. stopped going to 12-step meetings, I was living in a room, my marriage was over, I wasn't living with my kids. So it was it was poised to happen. And this was the final straw. It, 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 I came out and I was, for six months, I was more famous than I've ever been in my life. I remember going out the first, I remember going out the first time, putting petrol in the car. I was stopped for four selfies between putting petrol in the car and walking into the petrol station. And it turns out, I've been thinking about this a lot, I'm allergic to fame. I like it. You know, in the same way I like cocaine, it makes me feel good and it makes me feel powerful but it also ruins my life. Fame has the same effect. I miss it. It makes me feel good, makes me feel sexy, makes me feel powerful. All of this stuff is not real, but it's what it makes me feel. But I'm allergic to it, uh, and it's, it, it can take me to very, very dark places. Well, I apologise for all the fame that's coming your way after this episode comes out. In. <laughs> yes, Simon, bring it on. This, this, this podcast is really popular. I get asked to do loads of stuff. And most of them, you know, I, I very politely decline. But when you ask, I'm in a phase of saying no to everything. It's like, oh, I know this, but my friend um, David, who does a pod, was talking about this podcast 
about a week before you got in touch, you know, so. <laughs> this makes it look like I was fishing. I was doing a joke about how not, <laughs> it's not going to be a big deal when it comes out, but bless you. No, but own it. But own it. This is a really popular podcast. And then I'm scrolling through the guests. I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> look at the. Also, you got, I tell you the one I listened to the other day. I can't remember his name. Um, I won't call him Billy Bullshit. Uh uh, the my the guy that made my the guy that the the gentleman who is a real innovator in video games and has created some great games, but also he likes to you know he, oh Peter Molyneux Peter Molyneux and what I liked about it I like Peter you know and I think he's done some great stuff and I like people that that sell things in interviews yeah but you brought that up straight away in the introduction you brought that up. Um, you know, you've been accused of, critics say sometimes you, you exaggerate about stuff. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm definitely doing this because if, if that's, if he goes in straight away, I'm totally up for oh, that. Oh, bless you. So well oh, done for being kind. bold. And, and, you know, you've brought up some stuff today that's uncomfortable. And I know as an interviewer, that can be difficult. So I'm really grateful that, that, that you do that. And I think you should feel proud of yourself that you are able to do that. Oh, man. I'm blushing. Thank you, Ian. Okay. You're very welcome. That's very kind. You're very welcome. All right. Let's come to your fifth game then and turn the camera back on you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to drug times. This is, I think it's Rainbow Six Three. I was doing some research on the OG Xbox and this was a cocaine game. This was a cocaine game. I would stay up for days on end doing cocaine. My partner had gone to bed. I'll be, I'll be, up, in a, I'll be up in an hour just playing this. You know, I'd go up 6.30, half an hour before she got up for work and pretend I'd been there all night. And and this was the game. This was the game that I would, would play and get really into it. My one of my dealers played it as well. So I thought, yeah, I'm the big man. I'm playing Rainbow Six Three with a dealer. So it, it has mixed memories. However, it's a flipping good game. Uh, the online multiplayer mode was, I think, when online console gaming really started to get comfortable, really found yeah. its feet. First Xbox. It, yeah. yeah. Really found its feet. You also had the microphones. And I remember on the OG Xbox, I'm saying OG a lot because I've just spent a few days with my kids original <laughs> um you had like a voice changer and you could you had like five you could make your voice sound like this which was hilarious <laughs> but i remember there was a great map in it and someone may correct me go actually it was it was different anyway there was a great multiplayer map it was a garage and you you could if you timed if when the game started if you timed a grenade throw you could throw it over the garage and spawn kill the entire team. If they didn't move straight away, you could mm. knock out four players. And I miss the days of spawn kills where people would <laughs> spawn in the same place. And if you could get round to their spawn, boom, 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 you just pick them off. Like, oh, you're spawn killing. You get reported for spawn killing. I miss that, man. I miss spawn killing. <laughs> so Microsoft could swoop in and ban you. <laughs> Has Microsoft ever responded to a report? It was um, unsportsmanlike 
gameplay, I think, was one <laughs> yeah. of the boxes you could tick. Imagine someone at Microsoft going, oh, man, this is the third report of this guy for unsportsmanlike gaming. I think we've got to ban him. Forget the racism and the misogyny. It's, the, it's, it's that damn grenade launcher. Do you know launcher. what? That was a real downside of, of that gaming at the time is you would get a lot of American kids, American kids, British kids as well, but a lot of American kids being really, really racist. You know, I won't even, you, you can imagine the words and the language that was being dished out. You still get it to a certain extent, but I was marvelling the other day, it's nowhere near as bad as yeah. it, it used to be. It was a real shocking experience. But that was one hell of a game. It was perfect for, for cocaine. A terrible thing to say. Um, I wasn't happy. Again, I was very sick in that period. And I was very, very unhappy. But it was, it, was, it was a great game. And it was that garage. God, if anyone, is there a way I can play Rainbow Six 3 multiplayer now? I know Rainbow Six Vegas is, is available. But if, uh, Siege is the one, the one at the moment that's still really popular, I think. Siege is great. But I yeah. prefer the the old the, Rainbow Six Vegas one. is great. You you go and you'd play in the casino and you'd go and hang upside down outside the window, pistol. Oh, I used to, and then you'd go right, all right, let, la, right, last two minutes, pistols only, pistols only, and then everyone had pistols and you'd have your machine gun. <laughs> Terrible! <laughs> what fun! What fun! And it was more. It was uh, maybe this is just me. I would say it was you you do it more with people that you knew. There was more of a text, I'm going online, are you going online? That might just be me. Mm. And maybe my gaming habits have, have, have changed. But that's how I that's how I remember it. Yeah, it might be that time of life. I mean, I, I feel the same way. Like I sort of knew everyone I was playing with at that time in a way that I don't now, but um Yeah. yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Well, Ian, let's go through your console then. So we've got uh, Dragon Slayer, Elite, Wipeout. GoldenEye 007 and Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Six Three Raven Shield. <laughs> That's the full title. Is that the I full? Think. Thank you for giving it the full title. Someone may correct me if I've described the wrong game, and actually, I'd love it if if I've got that wrong. Let me know. And if there is a way of playing that online, please, 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 I'm let me sure know. There is. There must be. I'm sure. Right. We need a we need a name for your console then to market to the world. Ian, have you got any ideas for what we could call this? Oh. You know, whatever I come up with is, I tell you what, here's what we're going to call it. And it will upset one of my sons, but my my son, my kids have got YouTube channels. I never really talk about them publicly because I want them to keep them private. But one of, one of my kids' YouTube channels is called Kimbo Collaboration. So I'm going to call this console the Kimbo 2000 because I'm of an age where adding the number 2000 to the end makes it sound really futuristic. So we're going to call it the Kimbo 2000. <laughs> What's the what's the Kimbo a reference to? Uh, that's um, is kind of a, a it's it's a nickname my son came up with. Oh, and I love it. Okay. So yeah, the Kimbo two thousand. Very nice. All right, Kimbo two thousand. We'll do that. All right, and you've been so generous. Just before I, I let you go, why don't we do a plug for your podcast? So Random Access Memories. Tell us about what is it? Yeah, I, I've been flirting on the edges of. Uh, uh, retro gaming for a long time. I've been writing for Retro Gamer for years. Mm. And it was seeing a Dragon 32 in a junk shop in Liverpool, February 2023. That really whetted my appetite. And then I ended up buying them. And then I ended up, you know, jumping on YouTube and discovering all of these wonderful channels. R RMC Retro with Neil, Control Alt Reese, um, the, the Amigos. Um, but yeah, there, there'll, be, there'll be loads I'm, I'm forgetting. And, and watching them and thinking, oh, maybe 
oh, I don't want to do another podcast. I've got I've got Patreon and I've given up to I don't want to do another podcast. But maybe it could be each week a guest comes on and they talk about an old game. But I don't want to. And I really put off, really put off, really put off until it just became too much. And I thought, I'm going to do it. So it's Random Access Memories. It's free. Uh, it isn't just 8-bit. I, I don't define the term retro. I let the guest define it. It's entirely up to them. Some of its friends, a couple of celebrities, a couple of other YouTubers. It's really, really chilled. Don't push it too much. There is a Patreon. If you want to go and have a look at the Patreon, patreon.com slash Ian Lee, I-A-I-N-L-E-E. But even if you just listen to it free, that means the world to me that this silly little very niche thing I'm doing, you know, people people enjoy. So, yeah. sorry, a little bit of windy pops at the end there. So, yeah, <laughs> go, go and have a look. And if you, if you like it, that's great. Brilliant. All right, everyone, everyone go subscribe to Random Access Memories. Yeah, please and, do. That would mean the yeah. world. All right, Ian. Well, thank you. I mean, I know earlier in the conversation you said that you regret being quite so open in the past, but uh, I think it is, you know, extremely value, valuable, you know, to that vulnerability people people who are struggling themselves i'm sure will connect with lots of what you've talked about here so thank you you're very very welcome it's been an absolute pleasure i really appreciate being asked hey, that was a great rehearsal simon should we do it for real <laughs> thank you so much to my guest ian lee what a treat that was how wonderful to hear ian talking about his uh, eclectic life in broadcasting on tv on radio and then most recently of course working in the world of counseling you can follow ian at uh, on twitter at ian lee that's ian with two eyes if you just look at the name for this episode you'll be able to see the spelling i-a-i-n lee he's on there you can also go to his uh, find out more about the counselling business that he operates, practice, I should say. That's at ianleecounselling.com. The link to that is, of course, on his bio on Twitter as well. So, yeah, you can you can hear more from Ian there. He also produces lots of podcasts, not only Ian Lee's Random Access Memories, which, is, of course, is his podcast all about early era video games, but uh, he has lots of other podcasts that he runs uh, that you can find on Spotify if you just type up Ian Lee. I can't really keep up with all of the all of the audio output he puts out, but um, yeah, he's very, very enjoyable person to listen to. Uh, extremely talented broadcaster and radio person. And, you know, that style he's got of sort of flying by the seat of his pants, as it were, not like adhering to a particular format or structure is, uh, is definitely exhilarating. And you can see why his listeners become so invested in his his shows as well because that combination of kind of anything can happen along with his uh, extreme vulnerability and openness is a pretty pretty timely concoction i would say so yeah if you want to hear more from ian then chase down all of those various places and you can do that um yeah, it was great to hear his game choices as well. We've only had Wipeout a couple of couple of times before, haven't we? Frank Lance from NYU's Game Center uh, picked Wipeout, if I remember correctly. But yes, uh, it's really, I suppose, the poster game, particularly for the for the PlayStation. I know that Ian picked the Saturn version, which which I like. I love the Saturn. 
highly underrated machine but uh yeah it's really associated isn't it with the playstation era and video games that moment when they went from the sort of adolescent marketing of teenage boys in their bedrooms to clubs and you know dance music and all of that appealing to an older audience it's really aligned in the sand i think where the whole medium kind of shifted the way that it viewed itself Uh, and we've got sony to thank for that for sure it's actually an opportune moment to mention that read only memory that's the sort of boutique publisher of very high class very well designed video game related books it's an imprint of thames and hudson i think um, they've got a book coming out all about wipeouts art and graphic design which was of course all put together by the designers republic up in manchester or liverpool one or the other uh, the book is called wipeout futurism if you search that up you'll be able to find out more about that book when it's coming i think it's oh it looks like it's currently sold out but um i expect they'll put it up for sale again or maybe that's just the limited edition anyway yeah search up for the wipeout futurism it looks like a beautiful book uh, made by friends of the podcast darren wall um i did a book on dreamcast for read only memory some years ago helped out with some of the editing and pulling together of that and uh yeah very very finely made books so go and support that if you're a wipeout fan right thanks for thanks for listening to the podcast this far it's always good to have you made a couple of changes around here just for year two i meant to do it for the first episode gary witters but only got around to, to it for this second one so that long intro that usually plays at the beginning of the episode where I sort of explain the premise, I kind of figure you all know what the premise is now and it was maybe getting a bit annoying. It was annoying me, certainly, probably annoying some of you as well. So I've, I've cut that out. It's just now sort of a 30, 30 odd second little intro bop for you to enjoy. You can easily skip over it if you want to, but you won't now have to jab the forward button every time you want to skip past the beginning of the podcast. So I hope that's okay. The little Neo Geo interstitial that plays in the middle of the podcast. I've also done a slightly different version of that using a music box, which sounds quite nice, doesn't it? I got a tiny little uh, music box for Christmas that plays a Zelda theme tune. I've got it here on my desk. Let me play it for you. That sounds like Game of Thrones, but it's not. It's one of the melodies from Zelda. Anyway, what a lovely thing that is. That made me want to do something with a music box. So yeah, I might update some of the other jingles, but uh, yeah, you know, a lick of paint for for 2024. I hope that's not too disorientating for you. If you want to hear more about the podcast and, you know, where it's going and all that, please do become a Patreon supporter. Head to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console for just uh, £4.50 a month, or $5, something like that, about the cost of a magazine. You can help make the podcast sustainable. You get your episodes early and ad free. You get some other bonuses as well. Um, yeah, I've not, I'm not great at like adding value for subscribers. I'm so sorry. It's just like, it's only me making this and it's a lot of work just to get the main episodes out. So I appreciate that some of you might think, oh, there's not quite enough bonus things for me to want to sign up. Um, but I kind of at full capacity now with my other writing commitments in my life. So I can't like do loads of bonus episodes, but I am trying to put them out as and when I can. You get the chance every now and again to ask some bonus questions to some of the guests and you have to be a Patreon supporter to do that and to listen to the subsequent episodes. So uh, either way, it would just be great to have your support in that way if you can manage that. If not, 
doesn't matter just subscribe maybe leave us a review on apple podcasts or on spotify tap the uh, tap the the ratings button it all helps other people to discover the podcast appreciate that follow along on twitter at my perfect console with the o's removed you get a little preview snippets of the show that's coming up uh, the following week i always try and put those out every week so it's quite a nice thing to follow along if you fancy it okay next week got an exciting exciting episode next week because it's something i haven't done before i have the author helen mcdonald best known for their book h's for hawk uh, uh, absolute classic memoir all about Helen's the death of Helen's father and how she worked through her grief by training a goshawk. Um, just really one of the best books of the last 20 years and won every prize going pretty much. Helen, at the tail end of last year, released a sort of techno thriller called Profit that Helen co-wrote with Sin Blachet an American-Irish writer. I've invited both of them onto the podcast and uh, video games were actually a big influence in the writing of Profit, as you will hear when you listen to that episode. I got Helen to pick two games, I got Sin to pick two games, and then they picked one game together, uh, that game being one that was a huge influence on the novel Profit. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a different kind of episode. It I think it works... <laughs> They're both brilliant people and they are very eloquent. The book, The Book Profit, is all about nostalgia. It's about a sort of government program to weaponize nostalgia. And so, you know, this is sort of a podcast about nostalgia. So uh, we get into all sorts of very interesting territory. I think you'll enjoy it uh, very much. So, yeah, come, come along next week where we'll have two guests. We'll have their five games and just one. One more perfect console. Till then, have a great week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.